Continuing Education credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. Check out cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information. The Cribsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host. Welcome back to the Cribsiders. Hola. I'm Justin Burt, joined tonight by Dr. Chris the Chu Manchu, uh, hey loyal as always, and phenomenal new producer, Dr. Audra Innes. Say hi, Audra. Hi, everybody. <laughs> Dr. Audra Innes. I, my, my, I failed my phonetic It's okay. Writing. I've been called worse. I've definitely been called worse than that. Uh, I pledge to never miss it again. Um, well, you're going to keep in this banter. We're excited to have you. This was an excellent episode, an excellent script. We're so grateful to have you join the team. Our guest tonight, Dr. Nadia Zaim, was here to discuss depression. Uh, but before we get into pediatric depression, Chris, remind us about the show. Sure. We are the Pediatric Medicine Podcast. We interview leading experts in the fields to bring you clinical pearls, practice changing knowledge, and answer lingering questions about core topics in pediatric medicine. We have a fantastic conversation with our guest, Dr. Nadia Zaim, is a pediatrician turned child psychiatrist who has only ever listened to podcasts in the past and is excited to be on the other side, as it were. She lives in Baltimore, where she works as a consultation liaison psychiatrist and is often dreaming of ways to improve the care the consult team provides to patients, families, and to the primary care teams working at the bedside. Outside of work, she is an amateur indoor gardener and rock climber, a cat mom, and is always looking for an excuse to explore new parts of the world. She teaches us the difference between a positive PHQ-9 screen and diagnosis of depression, the comparison between psychotherapy and pharmacology, and how to risk stratify patients on suicidality like a true psychiatrist. Nice, nice. Audra, do you have a good segue to get us into this episode? As a matter of fact, I do. Did you hear about the recessive gene? Mm-mm. What? Well, it decided to start gene therapy. It wanted to learn how to express itself. Ah, therapy joke. <laughs> we are very excited to have this outstanding episode with an old friend of mine who taught me everything I know about psychiatry and residency, uh, Dr. Nadia Zaim. Nadia, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much. I'm happy to be here. We're excited to have you. It's been a long time, but we, uh, when I was a resident, you were my supervising resident when I was doing the psychiatry rotation. And so I feel like we're back at home in Baltimore. We're very excited to have you to the show. We would love to get to know you. But first, let me formally ask, we're an informal group. Is it okay if we call you by your first name, Nadia? Of course. Yep. (laughs) Excellent. We would love to get to know you a little bit better. Our listeners would love to get to know you a little bit better. Um, can we ask you to introduce yourself in a one-liner format and maybe telling us something that you enjoy doing outside of medicine? Sure. So again, my name is Nadia. I uh, would describe myself as a Midwesterner who now lives on the East Coast, amateur indoor gardener, a black belt um, who has two different colored eyes and loves to listen to books on tape. <laughs> wow. You might be our first black belt. Is that in what martial arts modality is your choice? Oh, wait, Taekwondo. Yes, I took Taekwondo in college. And uh, just because I took it throughout college, got a black belt. So I would say it doesn't necessarily mean that I have any particular skill. Just uh, spent a lot of time there in the Taekwondo studio. I'm I'm still very impressed. So you said you're a a books on tape listener. Is that right? Uh Uh-huh, I am. Any good suggestions for our listeners? I just this weekend finished Crying in H Mart, which is uh, written by the lead singer of the band called Japanese Breakfast. Um, and it was really good. I would recommend that. Talks a little bit about depression. Well, I haven't heard that one, but yeah. I know. A book that Justin has not heard of. Impressive. I've never heard. I, I know Japanese Breakfast because I have series sets of radio um, and they are not a sponsor of the show. <laughs> but uh, that's a great pick. I'm excited for that one. 
One of the questions that I love asking our guests is to talk about a failure. I feel like it's important that we all have failures, normalize them, talk about uh, overcoming adversity. And would love to hear if you could share a favorite failure that you've had and maybe what you learned from it. Yeah, definitely. Um, I've certainly had quite a few, as we all have. I think one of the ones that sticks out to me as being you know, a blessing in disguise is uh, not matching into one of my top choices for residency. I, w- I was undecided and wanted to do peds and med peds and um, ended up matching into a peds only program, which really then facilitated me being able to do psychiatry. Um, if I had matched into med peds, I don't think I would have been able to have the same career path. So even at the time it was, even though at the time it was my first choice uh, to do med peds, I think it worked out for the best. After this podcast, you are honorary medpeds, and uh, I think that happens a lot in life where uh, there's blessings in the skies of silver, silver linings and, and things always work out. Um, that's a little overly optimistic, but we'll uh, take that energy and dive into some content. So we're going to start with our first patient who is from uh, Cash Flat Children's Hospital. We have a patient, Sid E. Caps, who's a 14-year-old transgender male, pronouns he, him, his, who presents to clinic for a well, well-child visit with his mother. Uh, so first question, well-child visits, should we routinely be screening for depression at well-child visits? If so, is there a specific tool? Should we be using PHQ? Should we be doing something else? Who should be completing for these typical routine visits how should we be, you know, kind of approaching depression in these kids? Yeah, I think that's a great starting point uh, for, you know, talking about depression. So we definitely should be screening for depression during primary care visits. The USPSTF recommends starting screening at age 12. And I think that makes a lot of sense because that's when we see kind of the biggest kind of bump in onset of depression. There's not a clear guideline for how often to screen, but most of the time it makes sense to do it at annual checkups. Um, And then if you have a concern to screen sooner than that. I know you mentioned Justin the PHQ-9. I think that's my favorite choice for screener. And if you look at the GLAD PC, the guidelines for adolescent depression in primary care, they kind of recommend the PHQ-9 as well. It's the my favorite one because the teenager will fill it out, um, but then you can look at it as the clinician in the room with them and use the questions to kind of guide a clinical interview or talk to them in more detail about their depression symptoms. And there's also a PHQ-A, is that right? Or it's modified for adolescents. Is this something that we should be using? I feel like we actually, our clinic used it for a while and then switched back to the PHQ-9, and I don't know if there's evidence or uh, do you have thoughts on this PHQ-A? That's a good question. I think, you know, either one is fine. Um, The PHQ-A and the PHQ-9 are pretty similar. Um, The PHQ-9 or A is no longer nine questions. It was started as nine questions, but now it has these extra questions at the bottom that are asking specifically about, um, I think most of them are asking specifically about suicide uh, because we found that actually we were missing a chunk of kids that had had suicidal behaviors in the past or suicidal thoughts. But I think more than I would, I don't have, the PHQA is meant for adolescents, but I think you could kind of get away with either. So you talked about PHQ-9s with, and PHQA with extra questions. Um, In some of my clinics, we have a PHQ-2, which Mm -hmm. I think is just like the first two questions of the PHQ-9. Is that also a useful way to start screening or do we should should we just go straight into the longer longer uh, screeners? So the PHQ the PHQ2 is great for if you are doing the screening during your heads exam or during your kind of assessment because it really is just two questions and you can ask the patient while you're doing the rest of your exam. The PHQ-2 is not as good at picking up depression, so you'll miss more patients if you only ask those two questions. So for that reason, I think, and every clinic is different, but I think if you can give the patient the PHQ-9 while they're in the waiting room before they see you, um, it'll be that's the best way to kind of pick up the most patients that may be struggling with depression. Now, are there any major pitfalls with using this type of tool? I think one thing I've I've noticed for in using a lot of these tools, whether it's PHQ nine or GAD seven, when I'm doing some some mood disorders, is it's based on like timing. How many times does it happen in the last two weeks 
Whereas I feel sometimes it doesn't tell me intensity. Are there other types of pitfalls that we need to think about when using these tools? Yeah. So I think the major pitfall that I think about is um, differentiating somebody who screens positive from somebody who has depression. People can screen positive if they're dealing with grief or bereavement, um, or if they're just having a particularly bad day, they may you know, screen more positive than on other days. So I think it really needs to be followed up with a clinical interview, kind of digging into those questions a little bit more. I think your question too about like, I think the PHQ says in the past two weeks, have you experienced? Um, but there are certainly people who may have experienced an episode of depression in the past, but don't have it now. Some of those questions at the bottom, like the suicide questions, will say, have you ever had a suicide attempt in the past or suicidal behavior? So you can catch some of it, like some of those past depressive symptoms through that. But I think it's reasonable to ask your patients on an, you know, during an exam if they've ever had these symptoms before, too. Yeah, I love that. Uh, I feel like it's something we talk about in primary care a lot is that the PHQ can be a really helpful screener to kind of go into deeper conversations. But that's not the diagnosis of depression of, is, you know, a PHQ of 10 and then, you know, the uh, exact treatment. So I think I, I love kind of differentiating those. I would love to hear you kind of talk about risk factors for people with depression? You know, are there specific things that are important in a history or family history or social history that should bring up our antennas to be more suspicious of mood disorders like depression? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And it's interesting because when I was thinking about risk factors for depression, I was thinking to myself, well, you know, there's there are certainly some risk factors, and I would think of so things like family history of mood disorder, depression is a huge one. And then as you know, people get older, so the ratio male to female ratio is one to one in younger kids. But as soon as puberty hits, the depression rates increase, and male to female is one to two, so twice as many females. So you could think of kind of wow. that hormone fluctuation as being a risk factor too. Um, and then kind of the other major, I guess, risk factor would be other adverse childhood experiences. Um, so like psychosocial trauma, that sort of thing. So those are kind of the major, um, I guess, if you think about like risk factors, um, those are the major things that kind of could increase your risk of depression. That being said, a lot of teenagers, and I guess this is how I start, but like a lot of teenagers will have similar experiences. And for some, those experiences may lead to or kind of trigger an episode of depression. But for other teenagers who don't have maybe a genetic predisposition, they won't have an episode of depression. Um, so I think about breakups a lot. We'll see kids that come in after a breakup with suicidal thoughts. There's probably, you know, thousands of teenagers breaking up with their significant others every day. It doesn't always lead to depression, but it can if you have some other genetic, you know, or other risk factors. So can we go into those genetic factors a little more? How, how deep do you go into talking about family history? So, you know, a lot of times, you know, with my adolescence, I'm having the parents step out, but would, would that be a good time when the parents still in to probe them about their history and maybe some family history there? And like, how, how far, how far back do we go? Grandparents, great grandparents, siblings, like, yeah, so cousins, <laughs> second cousins. Yeah. Well, you, so it's a good, yeah. So I like to ask the family, the parents specifically about family history, because kids don't often know, to be honest, especially the younger they are, the less they know about their family history. I also like to ask about family history of suicide. And honestly, I'll, if um, that is sometimes information that the child doesn't know. And so I will actually, if possible, if time permits, try to talk to the parents alone, specifically about family history and the child's like birth history and that sort of thing. I like to ask about parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins, and siblings. So I usually say like uh, the first rung of family members, but certainly like a cousin's history of a mood disorder is a lot less significant of a risk factor than a parent or a sibling's history. So really the biggest risk is parent or siblings kind of passing along genetic risk. So one thing you said um, just now about how young the patient is, and I'm thinking about when you said when we a lot of times we start screening at 12. Can younger kids present with depression, and how does that look? And how do we how sh what 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 are some red flags that would tell us in our regular 
wellness checks, they may say, hey, maybe this 10-year-old has depression or 8-year-old. Does that happen? Can, can we diagnose that young? Yeah. So younger kids certainly can get depression. The younger somebody is, the more their depression, anxiety, trauma-related kind of disorders, any of their symptoms will present as temper tantrums. So the younger a child is, um, the less specific their symptoms are and the more they'll have kind of tantrums or behavioral dysregulation or that sort of thing. And then as a child goes from kind of early childhood into school age, they may still have tantrums, but somebody with depression may present with prominent irritability and just have a really hard time separating from parents, transitioning from one activity to another, and they may just have this kind of persistent irritability that impedes their ability to kind of do the things that they need to do during the day. That's a great pearl that the younger, the more nonspecific. I think that's a helpful framework and approach. And so for for SIG, our 14-year-old, let's say in clinic, we do the PHQ-9, the score is 17. Uh, we take a history and uh, he is, you know, complaining of sleep disturbances, having changes in his appetite, low energy, guilt. A lot of the features that we find are consistent with this diagnosis of depression. And it's been going on for a few months, really since he disclosed his gender identity to his mother. He denies suicidal ideation and is interested in treatment. But if you had this patient in your clinic, especially where there's this family dynamic that we know, we know individuals that, uh, we know there's an increased burden of suicidality among trans teens. How do you address kind of this family dynamic? What's the conversation like in approaching this discussion? Yeah, that can that comes up very often. Uh, and it's really, I think the most important thing that I try to help parents understand is that we need to be validating of, you know, how SIG is feeling. So um, I've, a lot of times parents bring up concerns, well, how do I know this is going to last? Or like, you know, a few weeks ago, I was referring to him as a her and it was, you know, this was my daughter and now this is my son and I'm, I, you know, don't know how to kind of manage that because I don't know if it'll stay that way or if things will change. And so what I tell parents is that, you know, we, our goal is to be validating to SIG in the way that they're feeling right now or that he's feeling right now. And so that involves using their preferred pronouns, using preferred names, and really just kind of allowing them to explore their gender identity in the way that is most comfortable to them. You know, it's hard for families, I think, sometimes. Um, and so I think we need to also think about the experience of the parents and try to kind of meet them where they're at and support kind of the whole family unit. Because while I want really the parent to understand that they need to validate their child, I also want to validate that this can be a hard thing for a parent to experience. Uh, I think that's really a great approach and makes a lot of sense. Do you ever have conflicts of whether or not to disclose to the parent or ha how much information should we disclose to a parent if a patient is stating that this is one of the causes of their frustration, unrest? Yeah. So typically I will tell a child as I'm talking to them that everything that we talk about is confidential unless I'm worried about their safety or somebody else's safety. And that's when I'll have to kind of get other adults involved. For somebody who is experiencing, you know, gender identity challenges that they're having trouble discussing with their family, I like to offer to have some discussions with, you know, the patient and the family in the room together and model using preferred pronouns in front of the parents and that sort of thing so I can help the parents get used to the idea. I also think it can be helpful for a kid to have kind of a somebody there who may help support them during a tough conversation. And so depending on the situation, um, like if I'm, you know, taking care of somebody on the inpatient unit, I think having a family meeting together can be a really helpful way to broach some of these more sensitive topics with parents who might not be as understanding. And I wonder if there's also other examples of health disparities or health inequality that occurs with depression and how these can better be addressed? Or, or what are some of the disparities that kind of exist in, in mental health and depression that you see? Yeah, I think that the COVID pandemic has really, 
you know, shined a light on a lot of the disparities and just the lack of access to, to mental health care for kids in the country. So what we've seen, for example, during the pandemic is that a lot of outpatient or lower levels of psychiatric care have either closed or been at capacity. And so people are waiting even longer than they already were for access to care. And while they wait, they get sicker and sicker and sicker. And so then they end up coming into the emergency room in crisis, whereas if we could have you know, given them access to care earlier on, we could have prevented them from, you know, not every time, but, you know, in a majority of cases, we could have prevented the progression of illness. With that, kind of parents who are more savvy or more persistent are able to get their kids in who have maybe, you know, more uh, medical literacy uh, are able to get their kids into care more quickly. And so I think there are also kind of patient populations who then end up slipping through the cracks or getting sicker before they can access care. One question I have is, uh, you know, we're obviously talked recently about getting family involved and having a supportive situation. And sometimes that's not always there due to other circumstances. But also, do you ever come across, you know, we said that, you know, these mood disorders sometimes come in families. So do you ever, as you're trying to assess a situation, realize that you diagnose um, you know, uncontrolled depression in the parent? And if they were treated, that would also help treatment of the child. How do you approach that situation? Do you have a script? Do you just say, hey, mom? I think maybe you might have depression too, and maybe we should get you set up or you should talk to your doctor about this. Like, how, how do you approach that yeah. scenario if, if you ever come across it? Definitely. And actually, you know, one of the things, in order to do training in child psychiatry, you have to do adult psychiatry first. And I actually think part of the reason is, there are multiple reasons, but one is so you can kind of recognize psychopathology in family members as well. So it does happen very frequently, actually, that we'll see parents that also are struggling with their own mental health issues. And one of the psychologists that I trained with uh, used this analogy for a parent, and I use it all the time. And And it's that you really need to be able to take care of yourself so you can take care of the people around you. Um, and if you're, for example, on an airplane and the air oxygen mask drop down, you always need to put your own on before you can put on your kids. Um, and that's because if you can't breathe and, you know, pass out, then you can't help your kid either. And so that analogy, I think, even for people who haven't been on planes, I think it's so ubiquitous that pretty much everybody can relate to that. Um, so that's a helpful kind of just phrase to get people in. And then the question is, like, how do we access resources for the parent? And that varies based on the setting that you're in. Um, but oftentimes we'll ask our social workers to, you know, potentially provide resources for parents as well. And so with our patient, Sig, who is still in front of us, they're very patient, they're very kind. Um, they have, uh, we feel, you know, diagnosis of depression based on our clinical history and based on screening. And they're wanting help. They are interested in treatment. They want to feel better. What's your general approach to first steps? Is it is it therapy? Is it medication? Is it either or? Is it both? How do you kind of approach initiating, uh, especially a pediatric patient or a very young adolescent, into treatment for depression? Yeah, so... Typically, I think there's a lot of room for the art of medicine when you're starting to approach uh, treatment for depression in an in a adolescent. And so obviously, we want to start with the literature and the evidence base and see kind of what works to treat depression. So the first thing that I tell patients is that, you know, based on what you're telling me, you have a cluster of symptoms that comes together that tells me that you have depression. And usually, like we said, those are siggy caps, right? But like low mood or in, in adolescence, it can also be empty mood or numbness or irritability. And then changes in your vital sense, so those neurovegetative symptoms, and then changes in how you feel about yourself. So if you have any of those kind of together for at least a few weeks at a time that's impacting your daily life, then you have depression. And we know what depression is and we know how to treat it. So I like to kind of set the stage um, and educate patients and families that we don't think this is you being lazy or being an annoying teenager or being irritable because that's how teenagers are, right? We think this is an illness. And then the question is kind of what do we do about it? And so the major study that we have for 
depression, treatment of depression in teens is called the TAD study, Treatment of Adolescent Depression Study. And they looked at fluoxetine, CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy, and then a combination of fluoxetine and cognitive behavioral therapy. And if you follow those groups out for about 12 weeks, you would think that the cognitive behavioral therapy and the fluoxetine together is superior to the other two. But if you actually follow those kids out to 36 weeks, so if you follow them for three months, it turns out that they all kind of meet. So so what that tells me is that if I have somebody who's really sick and I want them to get better as quickly as possible, so for example, somebody who's in the hospital um, with depression, then I'll want to do medication and therapy. But if it's somebody who has mild or moderate depression and they have a strong opinion about what would be best for them, or if we don't have access to a therapist, but we can start a medication, then I'll use the kind of whatever works for that patient and family um, and then whatever we have access to. Um, so I think you could use, again, you could use any of those options and they all will work in the long run. And so I think it really allows us to kind of make good relationships with patients because we can do a lot of shared decision making for treatment. That's awesome. That I, I love the the study. I appreciate that. That's that's really helpful. And um for patients that you you do opt to start a medication on or for one that opts to choose a medication, do you have a go-to spiel or script about the pharmacology of the medication? You know, do you say there's an imbalance of serotonin and this is gonna get you to a normal balance? I feel like sometimes I falter at words when I'm trying to explain the exact mechanism because I don't want to completely pathologize them where you're just missing serotonin and this is a serotonin supplement. But sometimes I do think that that's what they want to hear. And I'm curious from someone uh, much smarter than me, how you go about counseling on medication initiation. Yeah, I think that's a great question. And we don't really know all of the ways that SSRIs work. So what I usually tell, and and just to take a back step, um, so fluoxetine is, a, is an SSRI or selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, and that's the most common class of medications that we use to treat depression in adolescents. So we don't know how they work. And, part, and so what I usually tell families is, yes, it increases serotonin in your brain and in your central nervous system, but we think it does a lot of other things too. And those things take time to happen. So it may change kind of a pathway of things that are happening in your brain. And that's why it takes these medications six weeks to work, because they're probably doing multiple things over time. Uh, so I, I know that's a little bit of a like non-scientific answer, but I think that's kind of where our understanding is of how these medications work. Um, and it, I think that's uh, helpful enough for families that they can usually get behind treatment with an SSRI. Now, I've, I've had some very, um, well, high-functioning parents who've come back to me about medications, and they've, you know, they say, you know, I've heard that sometimes if they start on medications, it increases kids' risk for uh, suicide. Is, is this a real thing? Is this, how do we broach this subject and how we talk about it in, in, in a, a coherent manner with parents and, and patients? Yeah, so... I have a spiel that I give to, to families when I'm starting an SSRI. And of course, I talk about this black box warning because parents are scared of it, and rightfully so. So typically, and just to back up through my whole spiel, I'll usually start by saying, you know, most of the side effects are pretty mild, things like headache or stomach ache. They happen at the beginning, and, and we start the medication at a low dose and go slow with our titration so we can avoid them. But even if they do happen, headache or stomach ache, they get better with time, and so we almost never have to stop for that. The other kind of more significant side effects that I like to kind of let families know about are activation, mania, and the black box warning. Uh, so activation is an increase in energy, and that actually ties in with the black box warning, which I'll mention in a second. Um, but it's an increase in energy and sometimes a decreased need for sleep that happens I've seen it happen more often in younger kids, uh, but it happens in adolescents and young adults as well. And it can be a good sign that the medication is working, but it can also be uncomfortable. I do sometimes have to switch SSRIs if the activation is too significant. And then there's mania, which typically happens months after we start an SSRI. 
I tell families about mania because I've multiple times now seen patients in the emergency room with mania who were started on an SSRI who didn't know that was a side effect. And they wonder if the person prescribing the medication missed something or that sort of thing. And it's really that we we don't know in a lot of in teenagers when they develop depression, we know there's a higher risk that they may go on to have bipolar disorder instead of kind of a unipolar depression. So I always tell patients and families, there's a risk that if you're on this medicine for months, kind of with, and you do have bipolar disorder, that we may kind of unmask it and you'll develop mania. I also tell families not to be scared about mania. If somebody starts to not need to sleep or to think they're famous or have special powers, just give me a call and we need to kind of change course with our medications. Um, And then getting back to the SSRI black box warning. So For that, I usually um, kind of tie it in with the activation. So when adolescents and young adults are starting on these medications, they get more energy first. Uh, But the negative thought process that comes along with depression is actually the last thing that tends to get better. So sometimes when people are getting better, they have more energy, but still these negative suicidal thoughts. So those thoughts can get a little bit stronger or harder to ignore. I use that as an opportunity to invite parents and kids to talk about those symptoms and to say, I know it's hard to talk about suicide, but this is, you know, it's totally okay to check in with each other, to have an evening check-in or for parents to check in with patient you know, in the morning before they go to school and just ask, are you having any kind of really negative thoughts? And typically that is kind of enough to for families and patients to understand the black box warning and to feel comfortable taking fluoxetine or another SSRI. Um, the other thing for us to know is that the studies that showed that increased suicidal ideation um, they went back and did kind of post-mortem autopsies on the patients who did unfortunately die by suicide in that st- in that big study and the people who died actually had no SSRIs in their blood at the time um so i think that it has been associated with increased suicidal ideations but not increased suicide um so that's another i don't usually get into that much detail with families um but it's a helpful thing for me to know kind of in the background so i feel comfortable prescribing these medications now i have i have two follow up questions one is about it sounds like we should be comfortable talking about suicide with these patients because you know, I, you know, I, I, I always hear fears from clinicians that if you bring up suicide, then you're introducing this notion to their heads and then all of a sudden they're going to do it. So my first question is, should we be comfortable doing this? Uh, the second question is, um, I had a resident recently talk to me about, you know, they had a younger child who, who they were worried about depression, you know, I think eight or nine, I can't remember exactly. And their question was, uh, should I even ask about suicide? Is there like, Do they, at that age, do they even have an understanding of notion of that? And does that help us in any way? So that's my first question about asking about suicide, if you could answer some of those. Yeah, certainly. So we we do not put the idea into somebody's head about suicide uh, by asking about it. I think if you think about kind of the flip side of the coin, if we don't ask about suicide and somebody's thinking about it, we could miss something really, you know, important. And so I... um, If somebody has depression, the way that I think about it is the most serious or severe sign of a symptom of depression is suicidal ideation. Uh, So I usually chalk, uh, like, we'll say it like that. So, you know, I asked you about all of these other symptoms. Sometimes people who have depression also experience like really negative thoughts about wishing they hadn't been born, wishing that they didn't have could go to sleep and didn't wake up in the morning, or even thoughts of wanting to do something to harm themselves or or to kill themselves. Um, And so I can, you know, if you kind of normalize it like that and say, this is something that happens with depression, and I want to make sure that, you know, I ask you if you're having these thoughts. And if you are, I want to make sure we talk about how we can manage them safely. Um, So I think having that conversation in that way um, will help us screen for suicidal ideation and will also help us know what to do, you know, help this child manage the next steps of their suicidal thoughts. With regards to age, uh, unfortunately, because we're in this kind of mental health crisis and we've seen a lot of increase in suicide over the past really, you know, many years, but kind of increasing even more during the pandemic. 
young kids, even kids who are nine or 10, die by suicide, unfortunately. And so I, I do ask, starting around school age, I think if we ask younger kids, there, I, I do ask younger kids too, but I think that question of developmental understanding of what it means to die by suicide is definitely there in like preschool age kids and even kind of young school age kids. But those kids in that population can be really impulsive and can still do things to harm themselves. So um, I still want to ask about it and want to make sure that I'm safety planning with kids, even if I'm not sure that they they completely understand the implications of reporting suicidal thoughts. And so for, for Sid right now, let's say that they are not reporting suicidal ideation. They recognize the black box warning and are, and are still on board to start therapy. Let's talk about starting treatment. One of my favorite icebreaker questions is whether you like crunchy or creamy peanut butter and what your favorite SSRI is to prescribe. <laughs> uh, I think it's a great resident um, uh, uh, and attending icebreaker. In kids, I imagine the options are a little more narrow, but maybe not. And so Nadia, what is your uh, favorite type of peanut butter and what is your go-to uh, medication to to start on a depressed adolescent. Definitely crunchy, uh, no question. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. <All right>. Um, <laughs> and I guess I would say so. Your <laughs> question about favorite SSRI is a really funny one, and I actually remember this is one of the first things I learned from one of my chief residents when I was just starting off in psychiatry residency. And it's basically that no SSRI is superior to another. Uh, And so there is a lot of kind of trial and error of finding out which one is good for any specific person. That being said, in kids, we have we start with a narrower amount or like, you know, a narrower spectrum of SSRIs because there just aren't that many studies. And so there aren't that many medications that are FDA approved. Uh, so I always start with fluoxetine uh, in most teens. One, because the TAD study that I mentioned earlier. Two, because it's FDA approved for treatment of depression in adolescents. Um, and three, and I don't usually tell patients this, but it has a really long half-life. So it's a really good one for teens who may not take their medication every day. They won't get any like discontinuation symptoms, and they'll still have a pretty good blood level of, of fluoxetine. So for those reasons, I typically like to start with fluoxetine for depression. But again, it's one of those things where you could start with escitalopram, um, <laughs> you could start with sertraline, and those are typically the three that we most often start with um, because they're the most often studied in, in children and adolescents. I think um, it was best said by one of my uh, graduating senior residents this year, um, uh, Tim Pian. Shout out to Tim. He told me this one one analogy. He he once told a patient that SSRIs are like going shoe shopping. <laughs> like you can sort of know what you're going to shoot for, but until you sort of like put it on and walk walk around with it, it's hard to know how it's really going to fit you. Um, so I, I want to get shout out to Tim for that one. That's beautiful. Um, yeah. One question about the SSRI is, um, you know, you were saying before, you know, you that. Uh, like fluoxetine can be activating. So obviously monitoring for mania symptoms, possible bipolar that's being unmasked. You know, my question is more about like other comorbid um, diseases. So, you know, I, we, I do find that, you know, anxiety is often seen with depression. You know, how do you go about uh, looking at these cases? We recently had an episode and people should check it out on anxiety. And for those patients, really, therapy is a lot of first lines, especially for our children. How, how do you balance that out and decide what's the best way forward for these patients? And do you change the dose of the SSRI if you are? Yeah, so anxiety is often comorbid with depression. And I think the other thing to think about is that a lot of kids who are depressed have anxious features. So they'll ruminate about things. They'll worry a lot about social situations or school or family. So the thing that helps me the most tease out, is this a comorbid anxiety disorder or is this depression with anxious features, is the timeline. When did the anxiety symptoms start? Did they predate the depression symptoms or do they happen with the depression? And do they get worse or better with the depression, right? So timeline is so important for helping us tease that out. If somebody does have an anxiety disorder in addition to their depressive disorder, uh, we do find that you you may need a higher dose of an SSRI 
to treat anxiety symptoms. Uh, depression symptoms more often can be adequately treated at low, low moderate doses, uh, and anxiety symptoms and, and obsessive compulsive disorder especially warrants kind of higher doses of medications. Now, higher dose for therapeutic effect, but you, a lot of times we start at a lower dose, correct? Yes, exactly. So people who are experiencing anxiety are more prone to experiencing adverse effects of medications. So we like to start extra low and go extra slow. Uh, but you're always balancing that with the desire to get somebody to a therapeutic dose as quickly as possible because we don't want them to you know, give up on a medication and think that it didn't work for them just because it, it took us so long to get them to a good dose. So it's kind of a, you know, you're kind of trying to toe the line between those two competing demands. And so this is an excellent segue to, you know, our, our case follow-up where we follow up two weeks later. PHQ's come down a little bit now is 15 from 17. Denies major side effects, continuing to deny active or passive SI. Uh, in looking to balance that line, um, how often should we be following up with SIG? And what does a follow-up visit look like? What are we looking for and what data are we using to determine whether to up-titrate, down-titrate, or stay the same uh, dose? So the, the frequency of follow-up visits depends a little bit on your ability to see somebody in clinic. So I think there's, you could say in a perfect world, it would be great to see this person every week, right? To see SIG in a week, see how he's doing, go up on the medication if he's tolerating his current dose, and then, you know, have weekly visits for about a month until he's on a therapeutic dose of SSRI. I think in the real world, it's hard in a busy clinic to see somebody every week. So that's where it's nice that we have the option of doing phone check-ins, uh, calling patients in between visits to, to see how they're doing and how they're tolerating a medication. And I think it may be more feasible to do like an every two-week visit with a patient while you're titrating an SSRI. And then once they're kind of on a dose, I would space out to every month for a few months. And then the least frequently I would probably want to see somebody I'm prescribing an SSRI is every three months. So I would space out to every three months once they're kind of stable on a good dose. I think in most outpatient clinic settings, I would do a dose increase every week. So starting at fluoxetine comes in capsules most often, and, and there is a tablet form, but most insurances for some reason cover the capsules. So that makes the titration, I guess, easy because all you can do is 10s. That's the lowest increment. <laughs> so you can start with 10 in a week, go up to 20. And honestly, I would keep somebody at 20 for as a I think of a therapeutic dosing range between 20 and 40 of fluoxetine. So I would keep them at 20 for six weeks and see how they do. And then if they're getting some response but incomplete, then I might go up to 30 and then maybe up to 40. So when you're doing these follow-ups, what does some response look like? How, how, like how does, I always still find it really difficult for people to describe the quality of the symptoms. Do you, do you repeat a PHQ-9 every time and say, oh, look, the numbers are going down. Is that helpful? Great question. And I, sorry, I forgot to answer that part of the question when you asked. Uh, but yeah, I think it can be helpful to do another PHQ-9. And I think that's the most kind of objective way to look at somebody's symptoms over time. I don't know that the PHQ-9 is validated specifically as a tracking tool. Uh, that being said, I think it's in, I know a lot of people that use it that way, and I think it's a reasonable thing to do because then you have some kind of objective data to say, I think this person is getting better, or I think they're, you know, the same or getting worse. I also just like to, again, and you can use the PHQ-9 for this, right? But I like to kind of get a little bit more in depth with the clinical interview. The other thing I think about with teenagers when we're treating with an, a medication or with therapy is that they may be the last person to know that they're feeling better. So I really, it's really important to ask the parents how, how their child is doing too, because parents may notice, oh, they're not spending as much time in their room. They went out to spend, you know, see a movie with their friends for the first time in months. 
They are going back to soccer practice. And the child, again, because the thought process is the last thing that gets better, they may still feel pretty low. And so getting that information from the parent is super important in those follow-up visits. Even if the PHQ is staying stable, if you're hearing from the parents that they're looking a lot better, uh, then that might be good reason to kind of stay the course. And so let's say that we, I, I start the patient on fluoxetine, get them up to a therapeutic dose. They're feeling no response. Um, I feel comfortable switching to like escitalopram or another SSRI, same thing, titrate up, and there does not seem to be a good response. When should I refer to a, this is typically when I refer to a psychiatrist, but when should I refer to a psychiatrist? And what's that first visit like? If they're in your clinic, what are you doing differently that maybe I can try to implement more into the practice, or you can say, nope, Justin, this is when we start. What, what's the next steps when we're uh, in the psychiatry's office from a referral from Dr. Justin after two failed SSRI attempts? Yeah, so that's a great question. Uh, typically, I do say that after two failed SSRI attempts, it's a good time to consider a referral to psychiatry. And that's mostly because once you fail two SSRI trials, you're getting into the area of medications that are not FDA approved for adolescents for depression. And so I think in those cases, it's helpful to be seeing somebody who specializes in that area. That being said, you know, so so if somebody fails two SSRIs, I may want to either augment uh, or add another medication in addition to the SSRI that they're on. And that would depend a little bit on what the failure is. Or have they completely had zero response? Or are they minimally better, but just not, not enough for them to really feel better? And in that case, I may want to add another medication to augment. Whereas if somebody is had zero response, then I may want to consider an SNRI or serotonin and norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor as kind of a third line medication. And then we are kind of getting less and less into the area of like FDA approval or like strong evidence base and more getting into the area of kind of that eminence-based medicine, as my uh, peds clinic preceptor used to call it. <laughs> so, so in that case, it's you know I think it's better to just kind of uh, refer out for going off the beaten path a little bit with treatment options. So, if we're seeing patients back from you. What what are the types of if you decide to do augmented therapy? What might be things that we're now seeing on their med list? So we're not like freaking out, like what's what's going on here? Like, are they psychotic, or do they think they're bipolar? So there's all these weird things, or are they having seizures? What were those like, guys thinking? What, what they, the, I missed something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I see what you're getting at there with the uh, psychotic seizures. Yes. Yeah, so yeah. so again, this is like venturing outside a little bit of the area of evidence, uh, but I think a very common medications that we use to augment are things like aripiprazole, which is an antipsychotic that has an FDA indication for irritability in children with autism, but also we find is a helpful augmenter for SSRIs um, and SNRIs for treatment of depression. Other antipsychotics can be used for augmenting too. Uh, and then we also use mood stabilizers. So things like lamotrigine, uh, although I would say there's very little evidence for that, um, but lithium has, has some good evidence as being an augmenter and helping to decrease suicidal ideation in, in kids who have kind of frequent or chronic suicidality. So those, yeah, mood stabilizers, antipsychotics, those are the big classes of kind of major things that we would augment with. And do we ever use... Are there types of... <laughs> yeah, Justin, you go first. Uh, I've been, I've been hogging Well, no, I'm just excited about the uh, I mean, electroconvulsive therapy, ECT. Is that something that is ever done in, in peds or adolescents? It is, but it depends on what state you live in, uh, because unfortunately, there are some states where ECT is illegal for minors. Uh, and that can be really sad because we use ECT for treatment resistant depression, but we also use it for treatment of catatonia. And it can sometimes be urgent or emergent that somebody with malignant catatonia or very severe catatonia gets ECT to help save their life. So in those cases, we 
and we're lucky in Maryland where I practice that we don't, uh, we can do ECT on minors here, but there are other states where people will, will get transferred from one state to another so they can get ECT if they need it. I think that was one of the most, when I was a medical student, you know, they, they made everyone who is on our psych rotations go watch ECT because it looks, you know, everyone has this idea of what it looks like from movies and TV shows. And it's so different. And, you know, I was able to talk to patients who were on therapy and they're like, it changed their lives. And so I think anyone who, um, who is going to be treating patients, uh, hopefully at some point they have some sort of introduction or experience to be able to see what ECT is. Cause it's so different than what, what's been demonized or drum, dramatized. Is that a word on, on, in, in, in the media? One question about when you're doing augmentation, you know, you're doing all these t- different types of medications, uh, it, and we talked a little bit about follow-ups in terms of looking at um, mood and their symptoms. Do we have to follow anything else? Do we need to be looking for metabolic disorders? Should we be checking their chemistries or lipids or something like that? Like, it, 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 do we do we do this? Should we be doing this? So I think that in a primary care clinic. Uh, with SSRIs and SNRIs, there's no need for uh, blood checks or anything like that. I will say, and a lot of the work that I do is um, in consult liaison psychiatry, so we will discharge patients from the medical hospital and may have started them on a medication that a pediatrician will bridge um, until they're able to establish care with a psychiatrist. And so we do get into some situations where somebody is on aripiprazole or risperidone, for example, uh, and goes to their primary care pediatrician to help them continue that medication for sometimes months at a time. And so in those cases, it is important to check uh, every, and this is, I think that recommendation is like a baseline before you start, and then every three months for a a few times, and then space out to every six months to check a lipid panel um, and liver function tests and a hemoglobin A1C, because we know that antipsychotics can lead to increased appetite decreased, um, like decreased lipid metabolism and, and kind of hyperlipidemia and increased risk of diabetes. So we do screen every three to six months. So for our patient SIG, uh, we are increasing their SSRI dose. They're not quite at the level of going to the psychiatrist yet. We're following them up two weeks later uh, to check in on them. And he now reports suicidal ideation. And we've learned from med school, the follow-up question after active suicide ideation is, do you have a plan? And he says that uh, we have a gun at home and I would use the gun to, to shoot myself. So now with this patient in front of us reporting this, can you talk first broadly about how you risk stratify someone uh, for suicide? What are some you know, of the acute risk factors and, and what are some of the, the obvious or maybe not so obvious red flags when we have a patient who is it having either active or passive SI, is reporting active or passive SI. Yeah, and I like that you said acute risk factors because I think that ties in with how we risk stratify somebody. So the way, so I think it as a baseline, it's worth knowing that our risk assessments are imperfect at best, very hard to predict who will attempt suicide or who will die by suicide. That being said, we do the best that we can with the information that we do have. And so the way that we tend to kind of do a risk assessment is to think about chronic risk factors, acute risk factors, and then mitigating or protective factors. So chronic risk factors are things like family history of of mood disorder, personal history of um, mood disorder, family history or personal history of suicide attempts or suicide completion in family, uh, trauma, so um, early, you know, adverse childhood experiences, all of those things would fit into kind of chronic risk factors. Uh, Then there are acute risk factors. So things that I think about, things that we can intervene and do something about and help decrease the acute risk factors to get somebody to the point where they're safe to go home. So those are things like a current episode of depression or other kind of psychiatric illness that we can treat um, and get better. Um, access to means. So this SIG has access to a gun at home. Acute kind of bereavement or grief um, due to a loss. Increase in anxiety is an acute risk factor and decreased sleep or not sleeping as well. And then, of course, active suicidal ideation with intent, plan, means, all of those things are kind of acute risk factors. 
Um, and then very important, oh, and another kind of chronic risk factor for SIG is his gender identity and that he's in kind of a minority group. And so that increases risk, as we talked about kind of at the beginning of the hour, too, for mood symptoms and for suicide. And um, so that's another kind of really important thing to keep in are a risk assessment. So then getting back to mitigating factors. So things like supervision involved family. So if somebody has a family that's really engaged, is willing to monitor SIG all the time, sometimes even take the bedroom door off the hinges. So they're like literally, you know, monitored all the time. Mitigating access to means. So this is huge. Taking, locking up sharps, locking up medications, removing guns from the home, ideally. So um, in families that do have guns, if they have a child who's actively going through a depressive episode, best case scenario, they'll give that gun to somebody that's so the gun is not in the home. Sometimes families aren't willing or able to do that, in which case I talk really about uh, gun safety. So keeping the gun in a separate safe from the ammunition and ideally having them both be fingerprint locks, if at all possible, uh, because kids can find keys, they can find combinations, they can, um, it, you know, get into safes, um, but they can't probably get into a fingerprint safe. So I think about, let's see, other mitigating, so I got a little off track talking about means restriction, but other kind of mitigating factors are um, hope for the future. If the if SIG is hopeful or thinks that things will get better, um, if he has a good social network, if he's engaged in school, um, excited to go to school or has people at school who are invested in him and who care about him and check in on him. And then connection with outpatient care that he feels is he feels connected to. So a therapist or a psychiatrist or a pediatrician who's checking in with him regularly and who says, you know, you're important to me. I want you to come in again in another two weeks so I can see how you're doing. So those things are all kind of mitigating and protective factors. So there's no clear, you know, we can say somebody's got an elevated risk. Um, there's no clear kind of cutoffs for low, moderate, or high risk necessarily, but we kind of take all of those things. So chronic, acute, and protective factors into account when we're deciding kind of what to do uh, or where to go next with a patient. And so maybe say, could we ask that follow? Oh, oh sorry, go yeah, ahead. Go I was ahead. Gonna, perfect. As far as the risk stratification yeah. of, of, can you talk about where they're going to go, partial or inpatient, or how we did the right treatment? Yeah. So for SIG, he's telling us that he, so we know that he's got an acute episode of depression. Um, we know so that's an acute risk factor. We know that he's got a chronic risk factor of his gender identity. We don't know a whole lot else about like his family history or that sort of thing, but we know that he has access. So we know that he has a suicidal like thought and that he has a plan and that he has access to means. And so those things mean that he needs to go to the emergency room for more assessment and for determination of kind of what's the next best step for him. As the person in the emergency room, too, doing a lot of these assessments, if that if SIG came in, I would likely recommend that he is admitted to the hospital if he's telling me this story. And is that typically if there's a plan, there's likely going to be an inpatient admission? And if there's passive suicidal ideation, sometimes without a plan, that is part of That's how I've kind of oversimplified things in my head. Is that a somewhat reasonable heuristic or is it, nope, Justin, you're you're causing damage and should uh, focus on other parts of your life? No, <laughs> I think that's a good way to think about it. What I, what I think about more than like passive suicidal thoughts versus active suicidal thoughts, although that's really important, I think about how willing is my patient able to safety plan? Like how willing are they, sorry, to safety plan with me? And how does their parent feel about being able to help enact this safety plan? So those are the things if I'm deciding, can I send, safely send this child home? I want to make sure that SIG is able to tell me, you know, walk through a safety plan with me and tell me that he 
has ideas for if these thoughts come back, what he can do. I also want to make sure that his mom gets the gun out of the house and is willing to take the door off the hinges and keep an eye on him 24-7, at least until this acute suicidal ideation goes away. And so those are the, like, safety planning and family are the two kind of things that I need to have in place before I feel like I can send somebody home who's, you know, who's more acute. Now, out of curiosity, if if you you are keeping them inpatient, what what exactly are you doing different? Are you is that time to give you time to start medicines that they weren't on, titrate medicines, or get them some sort of inpatient therapy? Like, what what are we doing different inpatient that that is that's so important that we can't do as outpatient? So, inpatient is really meant to be a brief admission in most cases. So the I always tell my patients coming into the emergency room, you know, an inpatient admission is roughly five to seven days for most people. So we're not going to treat depression completely in five to seven days. We're really, our goal is to one, if needed, start a medication and we can titrate a medication more quickly on the inpatient setting because we can or in the inpatient setting, because we can kind of watch regularly for side effects and we can um, be sure to kind of catch them as quickly as they're happening. And if we need to slow down, we can, but often people don't have side effects. So we can be more aggressive with titration of medication. Another goal of inpatient hospitalization is to really help somebody shore up on their coping skills. Um, So coping skills are, you know, ways to manage these strong negative emotions. Our inpatient unit where I work uh, has a lot of DBT or dialectical behavioral therapy-based groups. And so that really helps teenagers manage a lot of their emotions by helping them recognize that they can feel upset and angry And they can also use their coping strategies and, you know, be hopeful about the future at the same time. Um, And then another goal of inpatient admission is to link somebody with the next level of care. So we want to make sure that they, once they leave the hospital, that they either are going to a day hospital, an intensive outpatient program, or to their outpatient therapist and or psychiatrist, ideally within a week of discharge uh, to help kind of minimize risk as they're leaving the hospital. And then finally, the last thing that we do on the inpatient unit is like a real, and there are probably many more that I'm not mentioning, but um, a really thorough safety plan um, and working with the family to make sure that they can help keep the child safe at home. So let's, for, for Sid, fortunately, he completes a stay at an inpatient psychiatry facility. His treatment plan is optimized. He learned some great coping skills. He has an active safety plan. Family is very supportive. He's connected to a therapist uh, and he's discharged outpatient. So a very happy ending um, for Sid, who continues to thrive in his bright future. Starting to, to wrap up, I'm curious, are there exciting things in the future of psychiatric medicine or pediatric psychiatry that you're excited about in the future? There are definitely exciting things. I think that child psychiatry is still in a lot of ways kind of an untouched frontier with regards to treatment options and medication options and that sort of thing. So I'm always looking to see kind of what is coming down the pipeline. Typically, it starts in adult and then we decide, should we try this in child? So I think a lot about, you know, these are things that are not ready for prime time, but things like precision medicine or being able to test somebody's genetics and get a sense of what medications may be more helpful for them or less. There are some kind of pharmacogenomic testing things out there, but again, not very helpful yet, not not exactly ready for prime time. Another frontier that's being explored where I work that is still very much an adult thing is use of other types of medications. So like psychedelic medications, for example, for management of eating disorders, mood disorders, um, and chronic suicidality. So I think there's a lot of exciting things, probably still a few years for a child to kind of get to access some of those, but hopefully coming down the pipeline soon. What about transcranial magnetic stimulation? Have we seen have we have we seen any um, advancements or looking into this in, in children? Great question. I'm not probably the most up to date about kind of where things stand with studies in children. Uh, we don't currently do TMS uh, where I work in children. 
but it is something that I know we're working towards and hoping to be able to do soon as a way to allow kids to access um, care that isn't to the level of needing anesthesia or ECT, but might provide some similar benefit. And so we've talked a lot about, you know, from risk factors to diagnosis, treatment, and and, and the future. Are there major take-home points that you think it's important for listeners, whether they're students, residents, fellows, or attendings, uh, take away from this episode about pediatric depression? Yeah, definitely. I think, and I know I said this, but I think one of the most important take-home points is that I try really hard to stress to families and kids that depression is an illness in the same way that asthma or diabetes is an illness. It's something that is a cluster of symptoms that comes together and that we know how to treat and that we can treat successfully. And so I think that's kind of one uh, really important take-home point uh, that everybody should remember as they're taking care of these kids. And then my other, I guess, take-home point would be that we have evidence-based treatments for depression. And so if somebody's not getting better, my first question is always, what are you doing right now to treat your depression? And most of the time, it's that they're not getting an evidence-based treatment. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for sharing all those those great take-home points. I think our listeners are going to get a whole bunch out of this episode. I definitely learned a lot. Before we go, we, we want to give you a chance. Is there anything you want to plug? Is there anything you want our, our listeners to check out before they go? Yeah, I do want to plug state child psychiatry access programs. So almost every state has a telephone hotline that you can call or warm line rather, uh, where you as a primary care pediatrician and even ER pediatrician can call and talk to a child psychiatrist or leave a message for a child psychiatrist and they can give you a consult over the phone. Um, This is free for uh, the states that it exists in and it's great. In Maryland, it's called BHIP for those of you who live in Maryland. That's so cool. I think, I wonder if we have something called PDPRN in Rhode Island. That's a telephonic consultation program. Um, We have a tip line here in Ohio as well. Yeah, I don't always use it. So that's a great, uh, great plug for everyone to check out their state. What's it called? A, a pediatric psychiatry telephonic consult? Would you say it one more time? I call it a, yeah. <laughs> People call it CPAP, Child Psychiatry Access Program. Um, so if you search CPAP <laughs> online, you should probably find your state one. Yeah. Amazing. I bet we could probably find a resource. With yeah, we'll list. put it in the show Hopefully notes. we could put that. Uh, oh, great. Yeah. This was amazing. Thank you so much, Nadia, for for sharing your time, your expertise, uh, and teaching us about depression. I feel very hopeful for the future of our listeners and pediatric psychiatry. Anytime. Thanks so much for having me. It was fun to be here. This has been another episode of The Cribsiders. It's for, it's for the, the kids! kids. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> Get show notes and sign up for our weekly Knowledge Food Formula Feeds newsletter on our website at www.thecribsiders.com. We're committed to providing you with high-value practice-changing knowledge, and to do that, we need your feedback. Please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player, or email us at thecribsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our producer for this episode, Dr. Audra Ennis, our executive producer for this episode, Matt Cruz, our showrunner, Dr. Sam Mazur, our wonderful social media team on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Thank you for joining us tonight. I've been Dr. Justin Lee Burke. I've been Audra Ennis. And this has been Chris the Chew Man Chew. Thank you. Good night. Hey, you've already listened to the entire episode. Now claim CME credit. Continuing education credit is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. VCU is accredited to provide continuing education to the entire healthcare team. Check it out at cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information and to claim your credit after listening to this episode.